Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. Uh, my favorite, I love kids' choirs uh, every year at Christmas time. If churches are able to offer them, it's just the best thing because there's a wild assortment of unpredictables. That's what makes the kids' choirs so great. Adult choirs are the worst. It's the kids' ones that are great. The adult ones, so predictable. But kids, you usually have a few kids who have no idea what's going on, but it's very cute. And then it's always easy to spot the kid that didn't want to be in the choir, but their parents wanted them to be in the choir. So uh, some of you parents, if you know your child wouldn't like to be in the choir, put them in there anyways, okay? That'll help all of us have a great time. Okay, we're into our, is this the fourth week? It's the fourth week of this series, Gospel Fluency. And uh, by now, I'm sure if you've been in the room with us or online with us, you're seeing some of these clippings and newspaper things in the background. And some of you might think, what a mess. Some of you might be wondering why the newspapers... uh, I hope it's becoming more and more obvious. It's a newspaper, right? So it's news. And what's over top of it? Something better, better news. There's good news for everyday life. So for some of you, that was a light bulb moment. You're like, oh, okay, this is not as junky as it looks. Um, And incidentally, if you've got like, if you're zooming in on the screen, if you're really good and you look at what's on the screen behind me or if you're watching at home in front of you, those are not newspaper clippings, but clippings of scripture, and original Greek and Hebrew. So there is a better message than just the news that we see around us. Okay, some of you are probably like, wow, this is really brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, it is. (laughs) Okay, if you haven't been with us so far in the journey, let me just update you. And for the sake of all of us who have been together, let's sort of put in our minds several of the things that we've been going through these last few weeks. To begin our series, we entertain two really important ideas. Number one, we need the gospel. Uh, If you're a follower of Jesus, the gospel is not just a one-time sort of entry message. It's not how you kind of get in uh, and stay in. It's a living message that continues to give life to us and through us. And it's essential because the reality is, as followers of Christ, it is so easy regularly to forget essentials of the gospel. And then a piece of our soul is aching or in distress, and we need to remind ourselves through our relationship with the word or in relationship with one another, we need to be reminded of what the heart of the gospel is. So you and I need the gospel. Secondly, if the gospel message has eternal implications which are significant, it doesn't just matter for us, it means others need the gospel as well. We actually are a community of people who care about our neighbors, our coworkers, our classmates, because the gospel has the power and potential to bring real freedom and hope to their lives. So we've been journeying into this idea of God and five trees, the story of God and five trees. In scripture, um, maybe you didn't know this, I learned this recently myself, but aside from God and aside from people, the, the living thing that's mentioned most in scripture are trees. They're everywhere. In fact, major characters of scripture often are associated with trees. We'll find out a little bit more about that in just a few moments. And so there's this idea that if we pay attention to scripture, there are five trees that especially stand out with significant importance to us that I think if we can hold on to these five, it helps us, number one, to understand sort of the whole narrative of scripture, what's going on. Number two, it helps us to understand in sort of a clear way, what is the gospel. And number three, and this is best of all, it helps us to see into God's heart, because with each of the trees, we see something new and wonderful, dynamic, and amazing about God himself. So week one of the five trees, we looked at the tree of life, which really is a tree of dependence. And you and I have a choice to walk out our walk in this earth in independence or in dependence. And so God gives us a tree of life. God is for life. And then the second tree, which we looked at last week, is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we sort of summarized it this way, that it's a tree of freedom. It's God's gesture to humanity that I will not lock you in a paradise prison 
and control you and force you to be robots in this world. I value you and give you freedom to choose me or reject me. And in so doing, God makes relationship possible and therefore love possible. First John says that God is love. So him not providing a tree of the knowledge of good and evil would be a violation of his character of love. But he loves us, so he gives us freedom. If you weren't with us last week, I'd encourage you to go back online and listen to that message. I know for many people it was very helpful because it, it opens our eyes to a fresh way of understanding many things that are going on in our world and why. So today, a third treat. Now, in this journey, uh, I've been hearing from some people along the way who are like, I think I'm figuring out a few of the trees. You know, some people like to figure this out ahead of time. And so in many cases, I've offered people, like I could just send you an outline of the of the series, would you like that or would you like to continue to figure it out? And of the five trees, the one that most people just wonder and wonder about is the third one. And that's what we're gonna look at today. Because many people are like, I kind of figured out the first two. I've got a hunch about number four because that tree looks like something I've seen before. <laughs> and then number five, if you've done some reading in your scripture all the way to the end, you're like, I think I've got a good idea what number five is, but what in the world is the third one. We're going to turn to a book of the Bible. Any guesses which one we're going to find the third one in? No guesses. Somebody want to shout out any book? Exodus? Yeah. Any others? Sorry? Psalms? I heard, thought I heard somebody say Brazil. Uh, that's not a book in the in mine at least. Uh, but if it is there, I'll try to preach from it next week. Let's turn again to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. Uh, biblical theologian and scholar Daryl Johnson presents an interesting idea to Christian theology when he says, in his own words, that there's a different arrangement to Scripture's division point. If I was to ask most people, what's the first half of the Bible called and what's the second half of the Bible called, most people would say the first half of the Bible is the Old Testament and the second half is the New Testament. And there's some truth to that. And so Johnson is not challenging that or disregarding it, but he presents an important idea, which I think if you pay close attention to, you'll see that there's real accuracy in this. He presents the idea that the first half of the Bible is Genesis 1 through 11. And the second half of the Bible is Genesis 12, all the way through Revelation 22. And it's an interesting thought, because if you look at what's going on in Genesis 1 through 11, there's some pretty important dynamics and stories that are happening. In fact, we find the first two trees there, so that's a really helpful setup. We find the fall of mankind there. We find the flood there. And then we find the story of Babel there. And if you are willing to track with me on this idea that Genesis 1 through 11 is the first half of Scripture, we have to pay attention to that, the, the fact that there's now, after the first half, there are three significant problems going on in the world. First problem is this. The blessing of God is no longer filling the earth. After the two trees, after God's creation, do you remember at the beginning when he creates humanity? We looked at this in the series in September called 127. God created people in his image. He blessed them, and then he said to them what? Be fruitful and multiply. So he filled them with his blessing, and then he gave them a commission to exercise his dominion throughout the earth and spread his blessing globally. And that falls off the rails when humanity chooses independence instead of dependence. And so God's purpose of advancing his blessing globally is now at a standstill after the first half of Scripture. So the blessing of God is no longer filling the earth. Number two, people are not in relationship with God. That's a massive problem. I mean, look at what was going on in Eden and God's intention for humanity and his relationship with them, and now that's not happening. And then third, people no longer know what God is like. In fact, and we're not sure exactly how much time passes in that sort of Genesis 1 through 11 narrative, but enough time has passed that humanity has begun forming its own uh, pagan systems of worship. 
So within the known world, there were all kinds of local deities that were popping up. And none of these gods were showing up and revealing themselves to people. It was the human way of trying to make sense of what was going on in the world. And so if there was good weather one harvest season, they thought there must be a power outside of us that caused that. And they haven't taught us how to worship them, but if we can figure out how we appease them, humor them, help them, serve them, then that will go good for us. And then if something terrible happened in their world, and this is tracked through other ancient Near Eastern historical stories, if bad things happened, they'd figure the powers outside of our, our sight are up to no good because of something we've done. So they had this real cause and effect belief. And so if we do the right things, though they haven't told us what those are, then good things will happen. And if we do the bad things, then bad things will happen. In many of the ancient worlds, including Rome itself, uh, pagan worship wasn't really considered religion. It was a national defense system or a personal defense system. You were just trying to stay alive and you figured there's gotta be some gods out there who are wreaking havoc. They don't care about us, but if we do the right things, they'll let us get by. So that's globally what's going on. Nobody knows any longer who Yahweh is or what Yahweh is like. So what is God going to do about that? He's got three major problems on his hands. Half of scripture is now written. <laughs> now what? When we turn to Genesis 12, we begin to see what he does in response to the three problems. We find two things immediately. Number one, we find Yahweh. If you look in Genesis 12, the beginning of verse 1, Yahweh is right there. When the world is in a mess, where is God? There. He's showing up to make a difference. Now the second thing, and this is going to unfold as we just sort of look at a survey of several passages in, in Genesis here. The second thing, number one is Yahweh. The second thing is we discovered that Yahweh has a plan. He has a desire to form a covenant family whereby he can reverse the three problems that have gone on in the first half of the Bible. He wants to form a covenant family so that he can bless them, and through them, his blessing can now fill the earth. Number two, so that he can be in relationship with people again. And number three, so that those who are not yet in relationship with him can, through his covenant family, begin to discover what he's like. Now, this is fascinating. You need to understand that Genesis, as penned by Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is entering into ancient cultures. It's a totally different narrative because none of the surrounding nations had any idea that their gods were somehow benevolent, helpful, kind, interested, or wanting relationship with them. There's no records of gods in other pagan cultures or other ancient Near Eastern societies. There's no record of their gods seeking out a covenant with people. The gods don't care about people. The gods care about each other, and they misuse and use people to do their bidding in the process of their godly kind of world. And into that world, God is reminding his people, no, 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 there's a different story. Here's my story. I create people. I create the world. I want relationship with them. In fact, I want to enter into covenant relationship with them. It's a very different story. It's a shocking one. So let's just uh, track with me here. I'm going to have it all on the screen for you to follow along as quickly as possible with. But I want us just to pay attention to God's move now. Because he cares about the three problems. He cares about people. He's not given up on his purposes to fill the earth with his blessing, to be in relationship with people, and to reveal what he's like. How is he going to do it, and who is he doing it with? Genesis 12, verse 1 starts this way. So this is the beginning of the second half of the Bible. Ready? The Lord, or Yahweh, said to Abram, which means exalted or exalted father, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left as the Lord told him. What do we see here? God seems to have a significant intention to put his purpose back on track. He's looking to find a way to make his blessing go global through people. His first work and attempt was through Adam and Eve. 
After the first half of scripture, he's now looking for a new way to do it. So he's looking to form a covenant family that he can bless and send globally to reveal himself and bring others into relationship with him. Follow with me now, and we're going to discover a tree. Chapter 13, verse 18 says this. Abram moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. If you follow the story of Abram closely, we discover an association with trees, especially with this group of trees at Hebron called Mamre. Uh, most people would believe they were oak trees, which is an interesting thought. Matthew Sleeth, who is an author of a book called Reforesting Faith, What Trees Teach Us About the Nature of God and His Love for Us, is the one that points out that every, if not all, major characters in scripture, and especially in Genesis, have a tree associated with them. You think of Noah, and when he's waiting for the flood to go down, what comes to him? An olive branch. There's a tree. You think of um, Moses, who's in the Exodus. And what does he have an encounter with God through a burning bush? We could go on through scripture and finding different connections between different characters and a tree surrounding their activity. For Abraham, it's Mamre. His story carries on. Genesis chapter 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. By the way, read through all of these chapters sometime on your own. I'm just sort of giving you the best of the highlight reel so that we can kind of track and capture some of the most important details in this story. After the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, after this, and said, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? The Lord took him outside and said, look up to the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And that story concludes with this line that Abram believed the Lord, or in the original language you could translate it this way as well, Abraham considered Yahweh trustworthy. Chapter 17 carries on and says, God speaking, this is my covenant with you. So what is God looking for? A covenant family to form? Who is he talking to? Abram. And he says, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted or exalted father. Your name will be Abraham, which means father of nations or father of many nations. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. This has got to be very exciting to Abram and also quite puzzling, right? Because he remains childless. Moving along now to chapter 18. The Lord appeared to Abram sitting near the great tents of Mamre. So he's by the trees. While he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, Abram looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and he bowed low to the ground. This is ancient Near Eastern hospitality, and he's showing it very well. We know at this point, Abram's already a very old man. And it talks about him hurrying here. And in a different place in the same chapter, it talks about him hurrying again. The old men in communities didn't have to hurry unless they were trying to show great honor to someone because it, it was sort of interfering with their distinguished nature. So we see that inside of Abraham, there's this, this desire to show incredible hospitality. And we learn through this story that this is an encounter with God himself. And so the story carries on. The Lord said, or Yahweh said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old, well advanced in years. Abraham's 99 at this point. She's 89. Do the math. They're not having kids. Sarah was well past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself and thought, after I am worn out and my master is old, how will I have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, 
Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? And if you're to follow through, we won't take the time to go any further than this, but if you were to flip through the pages of Genesis onward, you begin finding how God miraculously does provide a son, Isaac, to Abraham and Sarah. And we find the covenant family beginning to form. We have Abram, then we have Isaac, and one of his children is Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons, that, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And Israel becomes what's known as the people of God. And then we fast forward, and we'll get ahead into some of that in our future. But the people of God grows and welcomes those who were not previously part of it. There were people who were of Israel or Jewish, and then those who were non-Jewish were called what? Gentiles. And so for many of us, or most of us in a room like this, we were on the outside. But God in his goodness wasn't convinced that his movement was just for his covenant people, because why? He wanted his blessing to fill the whole earth. He wanted all people to have the opportunity to know him and be in relationship with him. And so he used the covenant family to reach all nations and bless all nations, and you and I have benefited to this day because of that also. That's why, in case some of you have been confused, when you were a kid in Sunday school, you learned the song, Father Abraham. Had many sons, right? And it was left in, you know, all that stuff. If that's new to you, ask uh, a, a Christian my age or older to sing that song for you later, and we will. Why would we think that he's our father? Hopefully this is beginning to make a bit more sense because he's the father of our covenant family that you and I are part of right now. This is why Paul, when he's writing to the Romans, talks about us being grafted in to God's family. Yes, we were on the outside, but God has found a way for his movement to continue to reach further and reach us. So with these things in mind, I want to bring you three thoughts. Uh, and I didn't know how to title it. I didn't want to say, I have three thoughts for you. I didn't want to say, here's three key things. Here's three key points. So what we're doing today is, here's things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> now, I'm, and Laura and I debated a little bit. How many, how do you spell hmm the right way? I know H-M-M-M. That, when there's three M's, I think that means question. And I don't want you to be like, hmm. That, I mean, you can if you want to, but that's not the intent here. The, question, the, the intent is a bit more of a, hmm, one of those. And Laura was telling me, she's really good at it because she does social media, and I, I really don't do much of that at all, But because I was like, what about mm-hmm? And she's like, oh, that's M-M-H-M-M-M, uh, something like that. And I was like, well, that could work, but then I, I don't want everybody sitting there going like, oh, I'm supposed to go mm-hmm now. So if you could just kind of get into the hmm, Part of it with me without it being MMM because then you're thinking food right so it's hmm, hmm, like it's a thoughtful hmm. so first thought okay first hmm. remember we're moving from the first half of scripture into the second you saw how God started it at Mamre with Abraham number one even after people assert independence and corrupt themselves and creation God moves toward human suffering and pain and offers relationship and redemption. Hmm. That tells you something about him, doesn't it? Because for many of us, we've been presented this other idea about God, that when humanity messes up, he's like, you know, you should clean up before you come to me. You know, I remember when my kids were little. I'll pick on Jack since he's here. You know, he goes outside and he plays and he's all dirty and maybe he's got a runny nose. And you know, when you're like two or three, you don't care where your nose runs. So sometimes it's all over the face. And they love their family and they come inside and they want to give a hug, right? And most parents are like, oh, yes. And we try to do the distance hug, you know, where you hug their forehead like this from there. <laughs> and so they're kind of... But God does not do that. He doesn't wait for us to clean up. He gets down and says, yeah, yeah, come, come. And if you can't come, I'll come to you. And the world needs to know this is what God is like. Because there's been wrong narratives that have been spun around the globe about who he is and what he's like. And you and I have a call to help undo that. Some of that's been done by the church through history. Some of that has just been done in ongoing human attempts to try to appease the sense of guilt that's on the inside. 
Remember how the ancients were trying to make up these gods that were out there to try to help manage their world and their life? We live in a complex world where we're less concerned about farming and we're more concerned about how my soul feels. And when there's guilt on the inside, I try to make up reasons why it's there and see if I can undo it somehow. And that leads people today, even if it wasn't the impact of old church ways of thinking or wrong Christian ideas, there are people today who have their own idea of who God must be and it's the wrong one. Because they're, they're trying to deal with a sense of guilt or shame on the inside. They don't know what to do with it. And they need to know that if there is a God, if he's anything like Yahweh, if he is Jesus, he moves towards people. Not away. Second, God chooses Abraham, who is a pagan and cannot have children. I want you to think about that. So God wants to form a covenant family to fill his world with blessing. Okay, if that was your responsibility, if God turned to you and he's like, uh, you're going to be my deputy on this project, I want you to find somebody in the world. Keep in mind, my purposes have stopped. Keep in mind, and his intentions are there, but the purposes are not unfolding. Keep in mind, nobody knows who I am, and they don't know what I'm like. Nobody's in relationship with me. But you find somebody. If you were deputized and given that task, who would you go looking for? I know who I'd look for. Okay, who's kind of the best person out there that's going to give us the best odds to get this done? Right? Who kind of is already living the good life? Who kind of is the closest to us and knows us best? You know, who's going to have a lot of kids so we can get this thing happening? And God is so different than us, and it's beautiful. Because who does he pick? I mean, if you've grown up in the church... This is like, I'm, I'm, hap I'm, I'm trying to help you unlearn some things right now. I look at some faces who I know are new to faith, and so this makes sense to you. It's the Christians in the room who are like, wait, Abraham was a pagan? I thought he was always really good. Why did we sing about Father Abraham? We shouldn't sing about pagans in Sunday school. He was a pagan. Absolutely. Nobody knew who Yahweh was then. There was no scriptures then. There was nobody guarding the story of our faith then. God was not in relationship with people. People didn't know what Yahweh is like. Everybody was left to try to figure out how the world made sense. And so they had their own family deities. And this is why it matters so much that in Genesis 12, God calls Abraham to leave the land of his fathers. Why? Because he was being detached from all possessions and identity he had with that. In that ancient culture, all of your identity came from your possessions and your family. And so now he's being separated from that. And, and where did your worship go? It was whatever your family worshipped. You had family gods that your family for a few generations had sort of told you about. Well, okay, this idol that we keep in our spare room or our living room or whatever up on the mantle there... This God, we believe, has done this for us and it protects us from that. And then this God does this. And so those were your gods. But if you were separated from your family and went to a new land, that land didn't have those same gods. So now Abraham was separated, had no God or gods, and had no identity connected to family or possession. That's why it's a miracle in Genesis 12 that it says, so Abraham left. That's not an easy thing. Again, for all of us Christians who have grown up with Father Abraham and had many sons, we're like, well, yeah, good for him. He did the right thing. This is wild. A pagan who's got their own, you know, there's all kinds of gods Abraham believed in and followed. He can't have kids. And God says, let's, let's try him. And Abraham says, Sure. Isn't that wonderful? No? I think it's so wonderful. Because we live in a world that's constantly looking for the all-stars to get it done. And God's like, I'll take anybody. I'd take everybody. You see, if we, if Abraham was actually according to how most of us thought he was, that he was like this righteous man that knew Yahweh for his whole life, and then when he was in his 90s and didn't have kids, God's like, finally, I've heard enough of your prayers. Okay, I'll give you a kid, but here's the exchange. You've got to make a covenant family for me. No, it wasn't like that at all. God goes looking for the pagan who has no kids and no ability to and says, let's start here. Wow. I think that gives us hope. Because I'm, I'm not perfect. 
Neither are you. And so God says, wonderful. Could I back this up with a covenant? Is that not amazing? I mean, we didn't deserve that. None of us did. But this is, this is what God is like. And again, we live in a world full of people who have no idea this is what God is like. They think he's looking for the ones that have found a way to polish themselves and get life together. And he's not. He's like, oh, hey, do you want to follow me? I'd, I'd bless you. God doesn't show up with a big list for Abraham. He shows up offering things to him. Again, the whole world thinks God's not like that. No, he is. That's what God's like. He'll show up to the worst of the worst and the least able and say, I've got something for you. Wow. I don't know if you gave a proper hmm to that one, but hmm, yeah, I want you to think about that. Third, God is faithful. He's faithful to Abraham, isn't he? If you follow the rest of the story, he has Isaac. It's a miracle. Remember in chapter 18 at Mamre, God shows up and says, in a year, you're going to have a son. And the wife, Sarah, is like, that's not possible, God. What in the world? This is crazy. He's like, no, I don't care that you're 89. I mean, here in the first service, wait till I get to tell this story in the second service. I get to do, hey, a bunch of you, you're going to fill the nursery. God is faithful to Abraham against all odds. I mean, read how Romans relates the story of Abraham as well. Some people elevate Abraham into this hero status that it was his faith and his trust. At best, he just considered God trustworthy. The story of Abraham is not about how great Abraham's faith was. It was about how great God's faithfulness is. God is faithful. He was faithful to Abraham and miracles produced. And he was faithful and continues to be to his covenant family. And two subsequent thoughts that are very important for you and I. God is faithful. Number one, when things are difficult. If you follow, now, now I hope for some of us, things are going to begin to click into the right place. Because it's funny to think about, you know, this is the first half of the Bible. And this is the second half. Now, if you think that's funny, I mean, for whole, your whole life, you thought this was the first half and that's the second. It's not about exact middle. It's about what's going on. What's the pivot point? And the pivot point is Genesis 12. But for some of us who have been so confused by all the things going on in the Old Testament, I offer you this. God is faithful. And he's faithful to his people when things are difficult. Because when you read through the rest of the Old Testament, my goodness, the people of God, his covenant family, are facing difficulty all the time. And what's the narrative that shows up everywhere through the Old Testament? God is faithful. Israel, his people, his covenant family are harassed. They're attacked, and God is faithful. Provisions are lacking, and God shows up. He's faithful. And so, if that's historically true, I wonder if it's true for us. If God was faithful to his covenant people when things were difficult? Is God faithful to his covenant family when things are difficult? Yes, for you and I. If you're part of our church family and you have been for several years, a year ago we were in a series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and as part of that series I shared about the dark night of the soul from my own life. From several years ago, where I descended into a deep, emotional collapse that was so, so hard for me personally and our whole family. And every fall since then, I can't help but remember the feelings. I remember the lows, and some of you know what it's like, where you're like, oh, I remember this, and you've been through something, and then something comes up on the calendar, and it reminds you. And every fall, I remember how bad it was. I remember how painful it was. And I remember how good I'm feeling now. And I think about a God who's faithful and carried me through that and carries me still. God is faithful. And God is faithful when things are difficult. Secondly, God is faithful when we are difficult. I know you're laughing because you're thinking of somebody else. If you want to make sense of Old Testament scripture, this is a significant part of it. 
Israel had a massive problem with idolatry. And it makes little sense to us at times when we look backward in history at them. We're like, you idiots, look how good Yahweh was to you. Why would you go serve these pagan gods and chase after them? But then you and I should look in the mirror too, right? Because we may not be bowing to Baal in our homes, but there are other things such as pride and ego and power and sexuality and identity and all these other gods that we feel lured towards when Jesus has been so good to us. And God is faithful when we are difficult. If you follow through the whole Old Testament, I mean, there's just patterns of God's faithfulness and covenant relationship, and then God's people embracing some idolatry and falling away, and then God wooing them back towards him. And they fall sometimes very badly and very far away from him. And you know what? Like we talked about last week, God gives us freedom. He is a gentleman that gives freedom. And even if his covenant family say, I want out, he is a gentleman that respects that. And so we see in the Old Testament, the Old Testament is full of poetry and history and prophetic writings. And we see patterns over and over again of God's people doing well and then doing poorly and then doing well and doing poorly and God embracing and bringing back. And we even see moments in Jeremiah 2, chapter 2 through 4, where essentially God's saying, it seems that you are so resistant to me now this is outright rebellion and refusal to listen, and I will respect that. And so God issues divorce to his people, not because he wants it, but because they do. And even still, if you're reading through that portion of Jeremiah, what's God's heart? But you can return. You can return. And so he even welcomes his wayward ones, his people, back to him. I think if you and I are honest, at times we're no better than ancient followers of Yahweh. We have this going for us. God's spirit lives in us. He gives us strength. He gives us power. We have a family of faith to encourage one another. When we see others faltering in their faith, we can say, no, no, no. God is faithful. God is faithful. So as we consider five trees, now with three in mind, the first tree is the tree of life. Second tree is the tree of freedom. And the third tree, when, I th when you think of these images, we're going to find ways in our future as a church family to have these icons around just to help us remember the gospel story often. When you see the third tree, I want you to think of Mamre, and I want you to think of Abraham. And when you think of Abraham, I want you to think of the word covenant. And when you think of the word covenant, I want you to think of God's faithfulness. Because even when we, as his covenant people, have failed in covenant, God remains faithful. When we are difficult, he's faithful. When things are difficult, he's faithful. Is this good news? I mean, this is the gospel. Again, most people around the world, if they have an idea about God, they don't think he's faithful. They think, if I mess up, I get the boot. And God's view of it is different. He's, he's a bit more of the, listen, if you outrightly rebel and refuse to listen, I'll honor that. Thy will be done. Have it your way. We don't have to have relationship. But if you're a human that's trying to follow Jesus and you know what it's like to mess up from time to time, welcome to the club. It's called church. And God is faithful to us through our mess ups. And that's, friends, is not a license to be like, oh, well, more mess-ups, please. I guess I'll follow some of those. Then we've misunderstood relationship and faithfulness and freedom, haven't we? But the faithfulness of God is good news to us. It is good news to your everyday life. Some of us know all too well what mistakes feel like, and the faithfulness of God is good news to us. Some of us know all too well what it feels like to be weak, to be helpless, and God is faithful. Some of us know all too well what it feels like to feel hopeless. And when you or a friend or a neighbor or somebody feels hopeless, it's the faithfulness of God that's good news to them in that moment. When somebody has a struggle in their marriage, the faithfulness of God is good news. When someone has a wayward child, the faithfulness of God is good news. When somebody is facing a cancer diagnosis, the faithfulness of God is good news. 
Friends, you will find yourself strained or it feels like life is falling apart. And you will find that God is faithful. When you find that circumstances are failing you, you will find that God is faithful. When you find that your choices and behavior have failed God, you will find that God is faithful. When you find yourself undeserving, you will find that God offers relationship and backs it up with covenant. His own life. We're moving towards communion today, and as we do, I want to invite you back into Genesis 15. This time, if you haven't opened your scriptures yet, I'd invite you to do it with me. Genesis chapter 15, we looked at some of this story already. I'm going to bring you into another portion of it. This is actually the covenant-forming portion of the story. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 7. Yahweh said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord God said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat and a ram, each three years old, and along with it a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them into two, and arranged the halves opposite to each other. What in the world is going on here? Skip ahead with me to verse 17. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and it passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the river of the Euphrates and to the land of the Kenites the Kezanites, the Katamonites, the Hittites, I think the mosquito bites are in here somewhere too, the Perizzites, the Raphites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. And some of you are thinking, did you have to read that last list? Let me tell you two things about this text that we just read. Sometimes we think there's a lot of extra detail in scripture and I'm not sure if there's relevance. Did we need to know all those ites? Two things you can know about that list of locations there. Number one, what's being listed there is the known world. They didn't know of a world beyond those lands that are listed there. And so here is God entering into a covenant with Abraham saying, I'm giving you this land. And what is he essentially saying? I'm giving you the world. Do you know what else is true about this list of places? These parameters, these nations, if you were to look at them on a map and overlay it over how Eden was described with its borders, it's virtually the same. It's God's way of saying, remember what we had in Eden, remember what we wanted, remember the purposes? I'm going to enter into covenant with you, and this is a way to bring back Eden. This is a way for us to experience a new Eden together through my covenant family. Now, while the chopping up of the animals, you know, a little bit morbid, isn't it? It's so interesting how God will find ways to communicate with people the way that they understand things happening around them. And in the ancient Near East, in the time of Abraham, when uh, treaties were arranged between nations or uh, opposing forces, they would enter into agreements or covenants at times. And there's a story, in fact, of one between the king of Assyria and the king of Arpad, the king of Arpad led a city, Assyria was a nation, and so there was a, you know, if you lead a city and there's a big threatening nation nearby, that's, you know, a little bit ominous, and so they're like, let's strike a deal so we can have a peaceful relationship. And so the record says uh, that when they set this deal in motion, they brought in several animals, lambs, and cut them in half and separated them. And then the king of Assyria walked between them and said, if I fail my part of this treaty, may I be as these animals, may I die. And then the king of Arpad walks through him and says, if I fail in this treaty or in this covenant, may I be like the animals that we've walked between. May I be, may I be dead. And so suddenly it starts to make a little more sense that when God is entering into a covenant with Abraham, he's like, here, get, get a bunch of these animals. You know what to do. You've seen this done, right, Abraham? He's like, I have. So he cuts them up, divides them. 
And then in verse 17, it says, darkness came, and then what appeared? Let me read it for you. A smoking fire pot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Smoking pot and the blazing torch represent Yahweh. And so when we follow this story, we realize that the pieces are separated and Yahweh passes through and says, I'm entering into a covenant with you. And if I fail in this covenant, I die. And then the story doesn't tell us that Abraham passes through. He doesn't. There's only the smoking fire pot and torch. And so it's implied that a second time Yahweh walks through between the pieces and says, and if you fail in this covenant, I die. And from the beginning to his covenant family, God knows our wayward hearts. He says, I don't even know that you're going to be able to live up to your end of the bargain, but I'm willing to be in relationship with you. And I'll back it up with my life. Friends, the world doesn't know that this is what God is like. We have the privilege to see his love, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness extended to us. throughout scripture that God is a God of covenants he's not just a God of like casual relationships with people he means business and he'll back it up with his life and so when God gives himself in covenant it's his way of saying I'm giving myself to you completely exclusively and permanently and I'll back it up with my life and so in Jesus Christ we see God demonstrating this in its absolute and purest form where on our behalf, Christ absorbs to himself our sin, our punishment, and says, look, I'll give myself for you completely, exclusively, and permanently, and I back it up with my life. And so when we are baptized, it's our gesture of response to covenant with him. And when we celebrate communion, as we are today in this gathering, as you're doing in your gospel fluency groups midweek, it's a covenant renewal ceremony. It's our way of receiving again to ourselves what Christ has done for us and us giving ourselves back to God completely, exclusively, and permanently. It says in scripture that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. Would you break a little piece of the bread? And it's symbolic for us to pay attention to that it was whole and it becomes broken and great. there's a great dramatic twist and prophetic image in that for us because in Christ's brokenness, our brokenness is promised to you because of Christ alone. Amen. Let's take the bread, bread together with thanksgiving. It says in scripture that in the same way, in the same night, Jesus took the cup and he said this cup represents a new covenant, a new agreement between God and people. And it represents blood and blood represents both life and death. And in again, beautiful irony and a great twist, God giving his own blood for us, his death means life abundant and life everlasting for us. Let's receive it together with thanksgiving. Moving forward, and there's going to be more clarity on this down the road, but we're going to formalize a little bit more often or regularly prayer ministry following our gatherings. Uh, we want our whole church family to know that receiving prayer ministry is a great blessing. All of us know what it's like to carry needs, face challenges in our lives. And it would be a shame if you didn't have the opportunity to receive prayer. I would encourage you to do that from any of these wonderful people, other, others that you know. Reach out to them and ask for prayer. We're going to get a regular rhythm of this figured out in the next few weeks. But today, if you've come, and just as we've thought about God's faithfulness, if there is a need in your life for God's faithfulness to kind of bust in and make the difference, to help turn things under you know, that are under over. You need just a break, breaking in of God's faithfulness towards a circumstance, a situation, a relationship, something you're thinking about, something you're feeling, something you're facing. Would you receive prayer from somebody today? 
we'd love to pray for you. I want to put on the screen for us just to see. Again, this is going to be online as well, but for those that are tracking along in their groups, here are discussion questions for you. Some of you take a picture in a time like this. Now is your opportunity. There's some dialogue opportunity in this for you. Some, I would suggest, if you're not part of a group, still take a picture and use this for journaling during the week or talk with your spouse through these questions. You can find this on our website as well. And again, very importantly, as we move towards Christmas and Christmas outreach as a church family, we're encouraging everybody to participate with others in Christmas outreach. Not sort of scattering your efforts individually, but as a group. You, you'll all have great ideas. Pick one that you do together. And use that as a great opportunity to practice bringing a sense of God's hope and faithfulness and love to be felt by others this Christmas that don't know Jesus yet. Let me pray for you as we conclude today. Father... We acknowledge we're going back into your world on your mission. And what you make known to us about you is our desire. We want others to know that this is what you're like. You're a God that gives life. You're a God that offers courageously freedom to people. And with that, relationship and love. And you're a God who backs it up in covenant with faithfulness. Would you help us to grow in our ways of bringing this into the everyday stuff of life, that your words, your ways, your message, your ministry would touch down in work, at school, in our neighborhoods. We confess right now we don't know how to do this on our own. We're dependent. We need you. We need your Holy Spirit. Would you fill us afresh right now as we go today? We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. Would you turn and smile at somebody before you leave? Somebody's still feeling a little low in their heart, and your smile might make the difference for them. I'm smiling at Greg over there. And you online. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.